Hello, John. Hey, how's it going, Tark? It's going quite well. I'm excited because we have another guest today. Drum roll. <laughs> uh, we are very lucky to have Ryan Singer join us uh, from Basecamp. Ryan, do, do you want to introduce yourself? I find introductions of others kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, sure. Hey, guys. <laughs> hey. Um, I work at Basecamp. My background is in design, especially more UI interaction design than you know visual design. And I joined Basecamp way back in 2003. We were called 37 Signals at the time. And I was doing web design. And uh, 37 Signals was just myself, Jason, the founder, Jason Freed. And we had another designer, Matt, working with us at the time. And shortly after I came on board, Jason said, hey, I have this idea for this app that we could make to make it easier for us to sort of deal with the back and forth with our client work. And he brought in uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen uh, as the programmer. And uh, me and Jason and David built the first version of Basecamp together. That came out in 2004. I ended up learning quite a lot about programming and the programming world thanks to what David did with Rails, because Rails just made the whole programming world much more accessible, I think, than it had been before. So then for, for a while, I was sort of straddling the design and the programming worlds. And that kind of led toward a sort of a product type of a position, you know, this sort of a uh, hard to describe role where you're kind of, you understand multiple worlds. So you end up somehow dealing with both and sitting between them and above them a little bit. And then after some more years went by, I had done a lot of work to help us figure out how to sort of, how do we structure the way that we actually develop and what do we bite off when, in what order and, and, and how do we weave design and, and programming together? By the time we had gotten quite good at that and really had established a lot of practices internally, it was like we, we had this big muscle now that we could use to, to build and ship things, but sort of like, well, what's the right thing to do? Like what? What should we you know, aim this machine at, right? So then that raised questions of strategy. So then I got really interested in understanding business better and strategy better. And I went deep into jobs to be done stuff via Bob Mesta's work. So today my role is a head of strategy and I spend most of my time sort of figuring out what's important to do next, how to, how to characterize where we sit in the market and competitively and sort of where should we take the product and, and then turning that into actionable ideas. That's very cool. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have read content from Basecamp, uh, from yourself, from Jason. You know, your, your blogs are very popular, but so are all your books. You know, rather than go into that, we really want to understand kind of the, the formation and how this all came together and really kind of the story around the story. Uh, but before we dive into that, you know, I, I find it so interesting that you have both kind of product and design roles. That's something John and I have spoken about a bunch of times. I, I used to be a PM, you know, now I'm a designer, but those are really just titles. Um, and now kind of your title right now is strategy. And so would you say, you know, how much of that is design thinking? How much of that is product thinking? Is, is the difference, does the difference even really matter? I think a huge part of what motivated me to write Shape Up was to answer that question. Because I, in a way, product management isn't a real job. Um, because what do you, what's the work that you actually do? Um, what, like, what, what do you create or, uh, you know, and 
I think that um, when it comes to developing product, the work doesn't come from nowhere. So somebody has to come up with what we're going to do next. And somebody has to figure out how to give it some sort of set some boundaries on what we're doing and what we're not doing so that you can have some actual expectations about, you know, what everyone is going to be spending their time on and what the results are going to be and where's the finish line, all of that. And we we landed on using this word shaping to describe that process of figuring out what the work is and whether it's the right work or not. So there's this shaping aspect. Then there's another aspect of we can we can prepare work to do. We can figure out what we want to do and what the boundaries are and what the end looks like. But that's different than actually scheduling it and making a commitment and, and lining up resources for it. So in the book, we call that betting. And then there's all the different practices that that need to happen to actually fulfill, you know, if, if you if you have a piece of work that's shaped that you want to do and you allocate the resources and line up the people and carve out the time, now how do you actually successfully execute that work? There's different practices there. And I think those are all the things that have to come together to do product, to make product, to develop product, to, to lead product, to take the product where you want it to be. You know, it's, it's all about this sort of shaping, betting, and building and how those skills get bundled in a person or across people is going to vary depending on, on, on the environment and the organization and, and the size and so on. You know, so when we were really small, we couldn't have a dedicated person whose job was to shape, you know, it was like everybody does everything, right? So then you have, you have hats instead of people. But of course, all of these activities still have to take place. Otherwise, product wouldn't, you wouldn't, nothing happens. Like you, you still have to figure out what are we going to do? You have to line up the time to do it and then you have to actually do it, you know? And now at our current size, there are roughly a dozen people on the product team. We've got and on any given six-week cycle where we're working, we have uh, two teams of one designer and and two programmers working, and then myself and Jason doing some shaping, and then we've got a, a you know a small group that does the betting. Now we can parallelize those things because we have enough people and we have this sort of specialized skill sets established. How those skills get distributed is is different. So I think it it can help to to sort of unbundle and and sort of factor out the different activities that have to take place instead of trying to define you know like what is the product manager capital p capital p you know m with the tm on the end or whatever you know like the trademark definition of this thing it's i'm not sure that really exists tark i was thinking about uh hearing that i was thinking about some stuff you've been up to lately at our day job I get the sense. So when you when you heard those different categories, there's sort of shaping and betting and there's executing. You're kind of you're sort of in discovery mode at the moment. Or like, what would you think that you're? What are you doing now? What hats are you wearing? Yeah, that's really interesting because I didn't think of my work like that until you just mentioned it. So currently, me and a few other people are working on trying to figure out new product area. We see some opportunities, and so we're doing a lot of research. We're trying to understand kind of how it would play with our strategy and how it complement our existing tools. And so a lot of it is research. But, you know, at the same time, it's so much more than just research. It's very much intentional research. It's very much, you know, product thinking. And I'm on the team to really provide, you know, what what I would loosely call design thinking, right? <laughs> and so just like any founding team, we have a mix of skills all headed towards the same goal. 
And so, you know, we have an engineer, we have a PM, we have a designer myself, and, you know, one of the co-founders of Amplitude are also on the team. And so, you know, I, I was about to ask you, uh, Ryan, about why you called it shaping. But now when John asked me that, that's probably, I mean, it might not be the way you guys use the word, but it very much is shaping because it's not just strategy work. It's not just research work. A bit of it's conceptual work. A bit of it is just being in LinkedIn navigator, trying to reach out to people for <laughs> user research. I spent weeks in LinkedIn. <laughs> um, kudos to all the salespeople and uh, you know recruiters out there because that's it's tough. It's a very stressful thing to do. Um, but at the end of the day, it really is, you know, I, I do now really see the value in the word shaping. And, and again, maybe it's not the way you guys use it, but we really are trying to kind of form this thing so we can present it to the rest of the company and and really try to make the best educated bet. And so is that, you know, are the things I mentioned kind of why you called it shaping? Like, why not call it product specifications 2.0 or, you know, strategy work or, you know, something like that? Yeah, I think you characterized it really well. It's it's how do you take something that doesn't have form, that is fuzzy and unclear, and you don't really know what it is and where the edges of it are and the size of it and so on, and then give it form. Because you, you can't give something to a team to do. You can't pass something off to other people to do unless it has boundaries. Very often we get into trouble because we fall on the other extremes of this, either the extreme of being too abstract, where we say, hey, go build, go build, a, I use the example in the book of a calendar because it's easy for everyone to relate to. If you just say, go build a calendar, that's, that's not shaped enough because I don't know what that means. Does it mean go build the best high fidelity interaction for dragging the borderline of an event block, uh, you know, so that it's it's not it's not an hour, but it's an hour and fifteen minutes long, you know? Or is it is it multiple events spanning cells on a, a multiple day events spanning cells on a month grid, or or is it the is it figuring out where there's overlapping availability and sending invitations and and notifications and stuff like that? There's there's so many aspects to it. So what does build a calendar mean? But then if you if you start to put some constraints on it and you say, well, we want a version of a calendar that we can finish in X weeks, like the one that we did was in the past, we built a very deep six-month project you know, to build a calendar in Basecamp 2. And we didn't want to do that again in three. And we said, well, our appetite for this is more like six weeks. So can we come up with some definition of calendar? that is a six week size thing. And in order to do that, we have to give it shape. We have to give it form. We have to say what it is and what it's not and where's the middle of it and 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 what are we doing and what are we not doing and kind of what matters about it and how do you how do you make trade-offs, right? And then when it has that shape, when it has that form, now you can set expectations about it. You can try and make some kind of measurements on it and say more or less, is it feasible to do in this amount of time and so on. So, and then the other extreme is if if we don't, if we if we try to overspecify it, and I think this is evoked by words like you know specification and so on, then what happens is we 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 presume to know more than we than we really do up front, and and then we we set out a whole bunch of you know fine grained tasks or very specific things that it's supposed to be, but we don't actually know we don't actually know what we want completely down to that level of granularity up front. So it's a question of level of abstraction. So how do we how do we talk about this in a way where we're setting boundaries on what the thing is and what it is and what it isn't, 
but we're not over specifying it. Cause if we try and define it down to every detail, it's just going to blow up in our faces as soon as people start doing the real work and find out that none of the assumptions that we have turned out to play out the way that we, we thought they would or hoped that they would. One thing I found interesting about this is that, that what constitutes the quote unquote right shape, I think, as you mentioned, is, is just so contextual, but the activity of shaping needs to happen. So, you know, for an example, uh, when I was doing UX research, you know, my responsibility was to take a group of engineers and designers, some on their first job and get in a van and go out and visit customers with the broad shape of improve the experience for these maintenance coordinators, for example. And now what's interesting about that is, is that turns into a very different mandate than a calendar, for example, but someone, and, and I was partially involved in that, needed to whittle down from something that was even a lot bigger than that before. So even though that seems crazy to some people, you know, you're going to stop working for two weeks and you're going to get in a van and then you're going to, everyone's going to draw and there's going to be drawings on the wall and we're going to form the road. It, it was almost like you mentioned about hats that, yes, we were doing that collaboratively and doing it in sort of a collectivist way. And we weren't, the, the mandate was really broad. It was like improve the experience for this group of people because we think there's an opportunity there. But the very act of shaping happened over the course of those two weeks. And so I think that, that, that what's interesting to me is that in, in someone's environment, what constitutes the acceptable shape might be different, but, the, but this type of thinking, this kind of problem solution, problem exploration, solution exploration, going back and forth between the two, the sizing of things, like the rough sense of, of the size of the bet that you want to make needs to happen. Who does it and who gets involved? It, it varies, but, but it, it is not a cut and dry activity. It's a messy, messy, messy activity. Um, and probably in many of those cases, it would have been easier for someone to say, product manager and designer, can you go off in a room and figure this out for the whole team? Uh, probably a lot of the engineers and designers working would have been like, that is a lot better. That's gonna make me feel a lot better. We didn't choose to do it that way. We chose to kind of spread the shaping across a group of people, but the end result was the same. Yeah, I think it's a shaping is basically an integrative activity where the, the, the way that I spell it out in the book is that you're, you're combining some kind of strategic understanding with some ability to, to see things from the, from the user perspective and doing design from the user perspective and with some technical literacy about how the existing systems work, how the existing infrastructure works, what you're going to plug into, what's possible, what's not, what's hard and what's easy from a technical point of view. So at a minimum, you have to at least be able to integrate those things together to do some shaping work because that's those are all the strands that you have to pull together, you know. And then there can be, you know, how, what exactly you have to integrate and how much you need to to involve other people. I think there's cultural aspects to that. There's 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 questions of your appetite for how much time you want to spend on, on that. Um, but then there's also can be domain specific as aspects where there might be things that you just don't know about that you need to bring somebody else in to help you to, to answer those questions early on, you know? Um, but I think another big part of this too, is that it's not just about you, you, you raise this question about what is a good shape or I, I don't remember the word you used, but like, is it shaped right or not? Or like what, you know, what, how do you know, what does it mean to be well-shaped? And a huge part of that is the aspect of risk 
which I think we need to be talking about more in, in, in our industry. We need to be talking much more about risk and uncertainty. And so something that if the borders of the work that we've shaped are too fuzzy, that introduces a certain kind of risk because it means that when the team takes it on, they might end up wandering off and doing some things that aren't strategically valuable. On the other hand, if the borders are really crisp, but there might be a, a rabbit hole you know, or some gap in the shaped work where there's something that is important that we didn't solve, um, the team could could end up getting lost trying to solve some technical problem or some design problem that doesn't actually have a clear solution. So there's a certain amount of, of upfront design, upfront solutioning. And at the same time, there's a lot of open space and a lot of latitude. And, it, and, and all of these questions depend on really when we're looking at the shaped work, we're asking ourselves, do we trust that this is that that we can give this to somebody and they're going to be able to follow through on it? Like, do we actually know? Do we believe that there are answers to all the questions that are raised here? Do we believe that there are solutions to all the things that we left unsolved in it? And and how confident are we? And how much risk do we think is in this thing? Tark, as a designer, what you know, we're, we're using this nebulous word, but I think that that's okay. But I, I think we can feel it. If uh, Ryan's very good at describing it, but I can't describe it, but I can feel it. As a designer, can you give an example of something that felt th that the boundaries were too crisp, like that might have felt constraining versus a an example from your career where something was too open? Like at the time, you, you know, you might have even been excited by how open ended it was, but it turned out to be uh, way too open ended. <laughs> Um, I, I, how does that feel like, or what do those efforts look like? Can you think of any examples? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, you use the word crisp. Um, I think it depends really on the culture. I've, I've been in companies where the specifications just make you feel like you're just a cog in the machine yeah, and you just totally. need to get, you know, the work done and you're wondering how quickly your, your job will be replaced by a robot soon because, you know, you just, you can't draw out of the lines. Um, but then I've also been in crisp situations where it's not that the specifications were wrong. It's just that for the desired outcome, the input was wrong. And I'll give you an example with Amplitude. We look at analytics very much as a social problem that, hey, you know, metrics have been around for so long. The promise of big data started in, you know, the early 2000s, but most people are still not using data to inform their decisions. And so we we thought, okay, it's really about connecting people and having the feature sets where, you know, you force the conversations to be around data. And so, you know, a, a desired outcome we wanted around content discovery was people finding more content. And so our input for that was building a better search. And so we looked at the search table and, you know, I, I explored all these different UX models. And as a team, we've We've done this now three or four times over where we've improved our search until we got to the point where we realized, well, search happens into the context of the people you know. And so just last year, we released Team Spaces. And so you would join the Team Space first, and then you can search content in that space with people you know, as opposed to trying to make you know this global search for an entire company work better. Um, I'm not sure why we kind of, you know, lean towards that. And for so long, may, maybe it's because, you know, Google has set this expectation that anything can be found, uh, you know, in, in the vast sea of information. But on the flip side, if you look at Google Drive, that's somewhere where things are hard to find. 
And so maybe we, we, we kind of face the same, same situation there where, you know, the search was important, but in the context of the people you knew, and it took us three or four tries to really understand that. And so in that case, you know, the specifications feel rigid, not because you have to follow these rules, but maybe because the shaping was wrong for the desired output. And then I've been in other scenarios where the desired output is just given. You know, I worked for a voice assistant company and, you know, the output was given that just did not match a user need. And so we had all the free reigns to do whatever we wanted to, right? So we, we were working with a partner to power their voice assistant um, and that partner wanted to sell, you know, uh, sports tickets. So you could say, hey, you know, hey, Siri or hey, Google, um, buy me tickets to the sports game, right? And they were just so focused on somebody wanting to do that. And we had all the free reigns to make that happen. You know, that, that was even more frustrating, even though we had free reigns to make the solution, because the desired outcome might have not been something a user wanted. And so there's pros and cons to either. Uh, it really just depends on the context. Is, is that kind of what you were looking to? I'm just laughing at all these kind of failed moments in my life. It's like a... <laughs> a montage going through my head of decisions. Uh, you know, I had no idea about it at the time, but it, you know, retrospect look, looks silly. No, that makes um, complete sense. I was thinking, Brian, do you, from the book, I know that there are a couple examples, but what does one that stands out for you that even as somebody who's been doing this for a long time, you know the domain, you know the customers, uh, you, you know your team, you know your CTO, you, I mean, you're, you're there. And can you think of even like in the last year where you found yourself you practice this, that you found yourself either leaving it too open-ended, over-constraining it. Um, does something come to mind that, that you had to catch yourself? Uh, you still run into trouble because life is a mess. You know, <laughs> there's frameworks and then there's life, you know? And um, so situations will come up where, for example, we had a project where, um, there was this whole thing that was that was shaped for for what to do, and just we 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 bet on it. We decided that we were going to go for it, gave it to the team, and then in the kickoff call there was this conversation that led to a totally different concept, and I mean so different that it didn't have any relation at all to the shaped work, and the the team decided to go ahead and and take off this pick, do this alternate version, but there wasn't, there was just, wasn't any shaping there. They didn't step back and say, well, if this is a different concept, then maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should put this back over into shaping land, you know, because we need to really spend more time thinking this through. Instead, it was just sort of like, ah, let's just do it, you know? <laughs> and, and for different reasons, sometimes, you know, in that case, it was because there was a new idea in the 11th hour. There's been other times where everybody just gets too busy. And then, and then all of a sudden, you've got to come up with some work to do and it's, you didn't have time to properly shape it. And then, so you say, well, let's just do this thing. And we've had projects where we ended up, we didn't ship it in the end because we didn't like, there wasn't, the, the boundaries weren't clear enough. And then the team didn't know how to make the right trade-offs. And by the time you got to the end of the cycle, you didn't like what you had. That's, that's definitely happened from time to time. The thing that I'm happy about in terms of being able to have language in a framework is that we can look back on that and it's not like, okay, was the, is it a bad team? Where was the performance problem? Is somebody in trouble now? Like, you know what I mean? Like who, what happened? And we can differentiate between when the work wasn't shaped. And for us, we, we don't have this problem of too concrete because we've, we trained ourselves out of that mistake 
you know, so many years ago that, that we don't, we, we haven't fallen into that any, anymore, but, but we do fall into the problem of, of not shaped enough. And then, but then what happens is the project happens and you can look back on it. You can say, ah, that's what happened. Clearly this wasn't defined enough. And then no wonder it spun out. And, and if you look at it through that perspective, the, the way that the team responded to it was quite reasonable. So that let's, let's not hold this against the team. Let's hold this against ourselves as, 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 you know, at the betting table for, for deciding to do this thing that wasn't shaped enough or whatever. And then, and now we can kind of use that feedback. We can sort of channel that feedback to the right place, you know, so that we can go back and tighten whatever part of our process it is that we allowed to lapse a little bit. I really like that. One, one uh, thing I've been talking to teams about a lot lately is just coherence. And now when you talk about this unraveling the decision making process, being able to, to do a retrospective and, and point to where you made certain decisions, one thing that comes to mind is that, that part of coherence is this ability to be able to, un, to unravel the story of what happened. And so what I mean by coherence is that sometimes bets are open-ended, sometimes bets are more specific. There's a whole spectrum of range of types of bets. You know, I've, I've seen companies where the bet is, I think there's a general opportunity in that direction. Go team, figure it out. After six months, if things aren't working out, let us know. That that's like a, that they were they could afford to do that because that could be very costly, obviously. And there's very prescriptive bets where someone says, "I just know we have to do this. I yeah. know we have to do this." But what I've found in the coaching in coaching teams is I always challenge someone when they feel, "Well, that's too prescriptive a bet." I say, "Well, what if it's right? You know, what if it's what if it's right? You know, what if what if you really do need to just build that? Do you have the framework in place?" And framework, the word gets blown out to mean lots of things, but but generally, do you have the do you have the the structure in place to be able to unravel that decision back? Okay, okay so you're going to do that prescriptive thing. Well, well, you know, what will that help us do? What's going to help us do that? Well, what will that help us do? It's going to do that. So, what's the bet? Is it a time based bet? Is it open ended? Do you have a stopping function? You know, talk to me talk to me about it in a way that I can fit it in my head. And then to your point. If things are going a little off the rails, it just doesn't feel like this frantic, I don't know what we're doing here. Why the hell did we do this? It's like, well, you know, we we did frame the bet this way and we talked about this and we need to revisit some of our assumptions, but let's let's unwind this. So I th- what you just said there is really meaningful in the, in the sense that ha- having this sort of pacing, having these artifacts, having this shared language really takes a lot of the major drama out of it. I mean, this is hard enough as it is. You don't need this extra layer of major drama of having no shared language and no way to talk about your bets and no way to talk about what was expected. Totally. And and then the the other case can happen where something can go wrong on a project and you look back on it, you're trying to figure out what happened and you say, you know what? We had really clear constraints on this. This this was very well shaped. It was well bounded. Every, we think that if we had given this to somebody else, that they would have executed it just fine. And now we know that we have some kind of a performance issue to dig into or, or you know, at the very minimum, maybe just a, hey, hey, what's going on with this person? Maybe they were distracted by, who knows, maybe some personal life stuff or whatever. But, you know, it, it can go the other way too, or it can help us to identify. It, it, it's all about being able to have that boundary between what is the work and what are the constraints on the work and who was responsible for setting the constraints and who is responsible for working within the constraints? And then and then how do we interpret those judgments differently? 
Tarek, I was wondering when, you know, we do a lot of one pagers internally at Amplitude and there's different approaches and different scopes of bets. You know, like some are very specific. We got to solve this one problem. Trust me, there's whatever, a thousand customers who want us to solve it. And some are much more exploratory. Have you found any tips or tricks or caveats that to, to think about when, because that's how we frame these particular bets, but what, what makes like a good one pager, for example? Uh, forget about you know what's in it, but how do you know you've got a good one pager on your hands? Oh, that's tough. You know, when I think about a one pager, I really think about the goals for it, and I find depending on the project, depending on the PM, the one pager is serving a different role. I've, I've worked with some PMs where the one pager is like um, what they use to defend their work. So if, if somebody says, "Hey, I didn't know that's what we were trying to do," oh. It was in the one page, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so he, you know, they very meticulously word everything in that one page. And yeah, I mean, that's helpful. It can also be used, you know, to, to be a bit obsessive where, yeah, of course, everyone read it, but of course they didn't, you know, <laughs> uh, think about every word. And, and I've seen one pager to just be like, um, you know, just kind of in a catch-all document of links. So you can kind of almost like a wiki homepage of, you know, things related to the project. So, you know, on one end, very strategic and one end, just very, you know, resource filled. Um, for me, I've tried a bunch of things and I'll just share some things that come to mind that haven't worked well and at times have. And so sometimes when I'm trying to explain an idea and, and, and maybe, um, maybe Ryan can speak to this in shaping, you're trying to explain what something could be. And I know Ryan has spoken in the past about, you know, rather than drawing wireframes, you know, there's this kind of language uh, he's developed to kind of just talk about overall flows. And so things I've tried to, to address that um, is to just share screenshots of things, right? And, you know, in my mind, it often makes sense to being like, you know, we, we want kind of like this, but more of that. And so it's almost like taste making um, that you would see in a mood board but used more for kind of explaining the types of elements, the types of feels we would want in a product. And I found that's actually worked fairly well. And I, I don't know, maybe I got lucky sometimes. And other times it, it, it's worked, you know, awfully. It's, it's just people were like, oh, you just want us to build that exact thing. Or, you know, it becomes kind of a Frankenstein thing of different ideas. Um, and so inspiration has been kind of hit or miss that kind of gets embedded into a one pager. Um, yeah, maybe I just stopped there rather than going into other bad things I've I've learned. Uh, does any of that resonate with you guys in terms of how to you know inspire people for a direction, um, but not give them you know exactly what to do? That's the challenge. I mean, anytime you give concrete, visual, fully visually styled anything, people are going to people are going to run with it you know i mean it's different if you have a long standing relationship with someone and and you and you've gotten you know if if you if you really really have a long relationship and you really understand each other you can you can surmount that but it seems to be a a, a huge problem in general that you say go 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 build this but but not this like do, make it look like this but not like this you know i, I drew this wireframe but don't make it look like the wireframe and I think what we need in that case is is just to get out of there. Like we we don't. It would be better to to not give the concrete example up front and use just the fat marker sketch or the breadboard and say, look, these are the affordances. The we have to get from here to there. Here's how we think A connects to B, so that we can actually so that it's going to work and do the thing that we want it to do. And then as far as the way that this actually 
all the details look, just just come up with something. And then it would be better and more productive to, to leave it open, but fix the things that are expensive to change, like the affordances and the way the things are connected and 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 how the system is 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 integrated. Have those have those very expensive things fixed or the really risky things fixed and just leave everything else open. And then in the process of, of actually uh, executing the work, I don't even like the word execution. We actually need a word. This is interesting. Like in, in, I call, and I call part three of the book building, but it's not even about building. It's, it's cause you're still being creative. You're still solving problems. You're still making trade-offs. You're still, there's all kinds of things that you couldn't have ever, nobody could have specified up front that need design or they need um, implementation. They need some kind of a creative solution, you know? So this, there's this act of filling in what was bounded in the shaping process. And I, I often use sports analogies way too often. So I, I mean, if I were to give a word, I would say like playing the game, right? And so shaping helps you understand how you're going to approach the game. Um, and then the bets, I guess, are about, you know, the different, um, I don't know, plays you're going to make. I don't know. And uh, but, but at the end of the day, I mean, the, the designers, engineers, PMs, whoever's building or doing the work has to play the game. And games, like you said, you know, have unpredictableness to them. They have, you know, variance. So I, I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah. yeah. And and I think, I think you put that freedom in there. And then if you, if you give the person, the person who you put in, into the team, when you make the bet, you, 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 you also want to have a fitness between this is the work that we want to do. And this is the right person to do that work because different people bring, you know, different decision-making. So we, we keep things simple by leaving it totally open and uh, except for the things that we're really concerned about in the shaping and then, and then just give it to somebody that we trust as being the right person to do that work. And then they come up with some direction and then there can be some back and forth of feedback. There could be some, some sort of creative input from someone more senior along the way or, or not, depending on how it goes. And it's actually easier anyway, and way more productive, I think, to make you know, visual adjustments or stylistic changes or, or things like that inside of a time box under, under the constraint of, of the, the time that's left when you've got a lot of the important things solved or, or working or fixed. Because then, because, you know, the, the whole thing about sort of what's the right approach, this can be a never ending conversation, but if it's bounded, then, then it's like, look, okay, we've got to make a trade-off. We, we've got a few ideas in front of us, which thing is better. Let's just go. Right. And, and for us that, that means that we're able to, to just keep moving, you know, and, and, and make a lot of progress without getting stuck on a lot of uh, what we feel is to, we, we don't have much appetite for a lot of exploratory mood boardy type stuff up front we'd rather just kind of um figure out the essentials and then and then and then give the team the latitude to, to figure it out one thing about shape up which i i really like is that it's a a textbook example of layered healthy forcing functions <laughs> on all levels right like there's the there's an increment length it's six weeks you mentioned there's a three-day thing that you want to kind of see people getting going <laughs> initially. Otherwise, you'll start paying attention more. You you know you limit the um, betting process to a certain number of people and a certain number of things, and you you you've limited your 
backlogs to a size of zero <laughs> until you are creating a backlog for a particular shape bit of work to go in, or it's not even a backlog at that point. It's a number of what, what you would call sort of, you know, aspects of, of the solution. Uh, one thing that comes to mind though, is that, that a lot of forcing functions without surrounding trust and surrounding safety are also used to, you know, beat up on people and can become really unhealthy. And so one thing I'm wondering is how did you, how did you create the environment where a number, the, the, the best forcing function, sorry, while I was thinking about it. The best forcing function is, is that if the team hasn't really wrapped this thing up in six weeks, you don't like keep going and then finish it. You just, that's it. You throw it away. Mm -hmm. And so how did you create an environment that was safe for those kinds of forcing functions, which in another environment, um, full disclosure here, I've been getting back channeled by people in the last couple of weeks. Like we're, we're thinking about doing shape up and then, you know, that we're worried this boss is going to do this and it's crazy. And we can't even get through one of these meetings without this person saying all these things. Um, how did you create an environment or what was there in the environment that allowed you to artfully use these healthy forcing functions for good instead of evil? Wow. What a great question. I might be oversimplifying it, but I think it actually comes down to one key thing, which is, can you, in terms of the bigger culture, can you leave people alone or not? So if you can manage to protect someone's time, then all this stuff about forcing functions, when we talk about a forcing function, on the one hand, that's perfect language for it. And at the same time, there's a flip side to, to a forcing function or a constraint, which is that it's, it's actually enabling. When you give somebody a constraint, you enable them to make progress because they know what the bounds are to work within. There's a beautiful definition of work from Stuart Kaufman. He says, work is the constrained release of energy. Without constraint, it's not even work. So... So this whole thing, I think, um, is kind of a non-issue in terms of all the forcing functions. The, the, the one place where you get into trouble is maybe there's two places. The first thing is if you don't leave people alone. So you can't, you can't give somebody a forcing function and say, here's, here's, here's the concept, figure out how to do it and, and get it done within six weeks. You can't tell them that and then go interrupt them every few days and ask them to do something else. That's just a totally unreasonable, right? And and it, it it also violates the logic of the whole thing because if you if you're betting six weeks, but you keep interrupting people, you're not getting six weeks of work, right? And 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 that happens on both the first order and the second order. On the first order, if you interrupt somebody, you know, for for a day, you pull them away to work on something else for a day, they lose the day. On the second order, they don't, they don't only lose the day, they lose the momentum that they built up leading to that day and they lose the time it takes to spin up again after that day, you know? So a little bit of interruption can be totally destructive. And a lot of this interruption from what I'm hearing from other teams can happen kind of across lanes. So it's one thing to have somebody who is somehow responsible for the product and then they have a team and they give the team work and then they 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 themselves interrupt the team. That's 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 one issue. Another issue is if if there's some other department like support that comes over and 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 tugs on somebody's uh, you know earlobe and says, hey, like come come here and fix this bug for me, 
Or even worse and probably more common, you have somebody from sales barging in and saying, look, the customer needs, I, I, we need this feature to close the deal. So stop whatever you're working on. I just need you to do this one thing, you know? And so if you can get, if you, if you can protect from the interruptions, everything else can get solved, I think, through uh, trial and error iterations, you know, because you gave, you gave somebody some work that you thought was a clear boundary. You gave them time to do it. You left them alone and then something happens and maybe the outcome is good. Maybe the outcome is bad, but you've created a beautiful learning environment because of the fact that you had all these clear boundaries in place, you know, and now you can say, okay, next time we need to be more deliberate about the shaping or no, the shaping was fine, but actually it turned out that, you know, uh, they, they, they tried to plan out the tasks too much upfront. They did it sprint style and it, and, and they put the tasks, you know, they put the project through the paper shredder and, and everybody had these little pieces of work they were supposed to do. We have to make sure we give them the freedom, like whatever it is, all those things can start to get debugged. And it's been interesting to sort of see the ripple effects that happen. I've seen companies take, take on six weeks of uninterrupted time first and then and then they felt like something was getting better but they still had some you know they 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 had some really long running discussions about what's really important and are we building the right thing or not and blah 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 and then they later learned ah we didn't shape you know so then then they put the two together and they were successful and i've seen other cases where somebody did they 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 shaped something really clear for the first time that had a very clear endpoint that was small and tight and meaningful, uh, but they weren't able to change the way that the uh, engin- engineering org was structured. So they were still in a in a sprint paper shredder situation, and so they they had this nicely chunked up piece of work. But then they 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 ran it through the paper shredder, and people got a bunch of un, uh, you know separated tasks that didn't all add up together the way that they expected in the end again. So then they realized ah. Shaping was good for us, but we need to actually do this. We need to actually protect the team inside of this six-week protected zone where they're not going to get inter- interrupted with anything else. I think if you can figure out, you know, if you can if you can just figure out those couple things, all the other all the other things will shake out on their own. Cool. I guess what I'm hearing there is two things. One, I like the reframe of the. It's funny the HCI definition of forcing function is something which snaps us out of automated thought. <laughs> In design, you add a forcing function to an interface to to actually snap people out of just doing something automatically. Mm. And I've always thought about that, although there's a lot of negative connotations with the word forcing. But use the word enabling. I think it's like an enabling constraint, which gets to the positive side of it. And I think what I'm hearing too is that if you're going to, what you need from the organization is you need a commitment. Everyone needs to commit to their side of the bargain to give the thing a shot. (laughs) Absolutely. That's why that's why we talk about the language of betting, which is. If you make a bet, it has a certain amount that you bet, which is like the length of time and the amount of resources. And a bet is something that you honor. You know, you you don't you don't put the money on the table and say, "Huh, just kidding. Let's do something else." You know. Uh, so I think I think I think that there is a certain level of of maturity and discipline and and clarity on on the part of those who 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 actually are responsible for allocating resources. And that's something that, 
you know, sometimes you have a founder who, 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 who hears about this stuff and, and, and then they are in a perfect position to put it into place because they're at the top. And other times you have people who are a little bit lower in the organization and they're saying, I wish we could work this way. Uh, but I'm getting all kinds of, you know, sales is telling us to do something different every day. And the people at the top, uh, would rather chase the, chase the sale than, uh, than say no and, and, and improve the product and, and so on. So that's 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 a really interesting it raises it raises structural organizational questions about whether that discipline is there and and how high up you need to go and how clear people need to be about making bets and and being deliberate about the things that they take on and the, and the work that they schedule Tarek, for you what's a good example of enabling constraint in design what, when what constraints work for you versus the ones that don't I think the constraints comes down to what you're trying to do. When I'm trying to explore a space and we're doing something maybe new or involves some complexity, I purposely set constraints that are almost opposing to one another. And so I, I remember my uh, my HCI professor back in college. You know, I, I would show him two or three designs, and he would say, you know, go out and make ten of them. And I'd be like, well, you're just forcing me to make designs I know that are worse than the ones I have. Um, and so he replied with saying, you know, what you need to do is just flip the assumptions, flip the constraints you have. So in, in this flow, you know, maybe you thought it should be a modal and this other flow, you wanted it to be really quick. Well, what if I told you, you had to make it really long, right? Um, and, and, and you still have to do a good job, right? What would a more hands-on, in-depth experience look like rather than kind of a quick take? And so when I'm exploring a space, I'm purposely flipping constraints. And almost always, almost all of the time, the solutions I end up with, you know, maybe we don't go with, you know, the ones that are flipped, but I always learn something really important from them, especially when I'm doing research and I'm showing people different options, um, you know, closer towards the end, I ask, well, if you had to pick one of them, which one would you choose and why? And I get responses like, well, this one, you know, this is the one I would really want. But you know what? I'm gonna go pick this other one because it's just gonna save me time, right? Or, or you'll hear surprising things like that. And so, you know, I've thought of constraints like that as well to use it actually as a way to inspire different thinking, right? To force yourself into thinking a bit more narrow at times by flipping a constraint and still trying to do a good job. Um, so I'm I'm not sure if that's kind of what you you were thinking about, but that that's often what I think about when I think of a constraints. Um, in terms of like normal, maybe everyday feature work, I think all <laughs> constraints to a certain degree are negotiable. Um, so, you know, being a designer, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm always, you know, my answer to everything is depends, right? That's, <laughs> if you counted the, the number of times I say depends at, at work, um, you know, it would be through the roof. Um, but but I, I think, you know, over the years, being in a more senior role, I've kind of, you know, learned to, to not take any constraint as an end-all be-all, work under it. And, you know, if you do find contrary evidence or, or people are asking for a different need than you had thought, you know, not to ignore it and, and really challenge a constraint. But I've also been lucky that, you know, as I've gotten more senior, I've worked at, you know, really good cultures that kind of accept, accept that kind of, you know, pushback. I was thinking my, first of all, I'm obsessed by enabling constraints. So, I have this this laundry list of things, but um, one one that I really like just to to keep this on shape up, which I thought was good, is the the cooling off period. Mm. And I've used this in the in the past 
uh, and the cooling off period in shape up and Ryan can tell you more about it is like after six week, sort of like a six week macro increment, whatever you want to call it. And then there's two weeks of cool off, um, which is unstructured and and that's leaving it there. You know, that's the, you know, you found a good constraint that that like 30% of the people you tell will say no effing way. Like that is the craziest thing that I've ever heard of. It will never <laughs> work. Like you could never do it. And and what I found is that there's almost this correlation between getting that response from some group of people and it and it working out. Another example in a I was on a team that was in this really weird sort of complex problem and, and we we broke it down to one day sprints. You know, like what what could we learn today? Let's not go to bed worried about stuff. Let's like try to let's move through, chip away at this, and bring some integration, some forcing function every day to to check our learning to do it. And and I knew immediately because someone from the other side of the company is like, "There's no way that will ever work. That is the most insane thing." And what I've noticed about the best forcing functions or enabling constraints is they're probably right in a non-trusting environment, but what seems irrational to them is. What worked out. So, so Ryan, the, the cool off period is something that I'll tell people, yeah, look, you know, shape up does cool off and there's these other systems that use a cool off thing. Why don't you try that? And I know you're on the right track when some high percentage of people tell me I'm raving mad to do that. So you're on the right track, I think. Totally. And we, um, we also find out for ourselves if it's a good idea because we'll forget to do it and then, and then we'll experience the pain of not doing it. So we had, um, we had a, we had a, a period this summer where the schedule, you know, things happen like with people being on vacation and then you have like the company meetup and blah, blah, blah. And then every, your calendar gets shifted a little bit. And we thought that we thought that we could get away with, with a one week cool down instead of two weeks. <laughs> and it was like, Oh, whatever, we'll just do a week and it'll be fine. You know? And, and before we knew it, everybody, everybody was starting to feel stressed out and, bugs weren't getting fixed that would have normally there would have been time to address those things people didn't have time to think about what they were going to do next like all of the all the pain came back and then that that's the real validation you know when you can say like in the absence of this thing all these other things happen so it's not just like a it's not just some sort of a sweet idea like let's get a foosball table let's have a cool down period you know it's 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 no like if if we are driving for six weeks at a time toward a goal and we expect teams to deploy at the end of that six weeks and we're going to celebrate a victory at the end of that six weeks and whatever they do needs to be done otherwise it's you know circuit breaker it's default canceled if it doesn't work out you're you're driving toward one destination that whole time and that's all you're doing and if you just pick up and do that again and again and again and you never have any free space in between when are you going to fix that random bug? When are you going to go back and and clean up that thing that you had an idea about how you could make the code a little bit better? There's just there's just no time for that. And those things are are so rarely feel important enough to actually schedule time for, you know, instead of that new feature or that big idea that you have, it's 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 really hard to say, you know what, let's not build anything new this next cycle, let's just fix stuff. Even though we do actually do that from time to time, we call it a bug smash. Uh, especially around the holidays, if a lot of people are, their schedules are going to be misaligned and it's like, well, let's just, uh, let's just use this time to, to knock out a bunch of bugs. But man, that those two weeks are actually really valuable. Everybody has, there, there's this weird 
obsession, you know, in a lot of teams with, with squeezing everybody's time and, and like fear of idleness. You know, I, I even get this question sometimes from people who read the book and they're like, well, but what do you do about projects where somebody might be idle? And it's like, if you look at, if you look at the macro and say, if we make this bet and we spend six weeks on this thing, where are we going to be as a company at the end of that six weeks? How are we going to feel? If we're going to feel like the product got better in a meaningful way, in a way that was consistent with our strategy, that took us where we wanted to be, and we feel fine with the fact that six weeks went by and that's how long it took to get make this thing happen, it doesn't actually matter how many hours anybody spent along the path. You know, the micro totally washes out. It does not matter. It's just, it's just the result that we, we got somewhere meaningful and we got there in, a, in an amount of time that we wanted to get there, you know? And so I think there is kind of a, a mental flip to, to seeing the win that you're getting at the macro scale. And then you can relax much more about the micro and kind of let the micro take care of itself. We see this a lot. I'm interested in Tarek's point of view on this, but we, we talk to a lot of teams and, you know, there's, there's a lot of good good reasons you'd use analytics, but one is if you have this particular idea and you think it's going to change customer behavior in some positive way, and you've done qualitative research and you've understood it, you have some way to understand whether it had the impact and maybe do more research or do more iterating or something. But but one thing we notice with the teams that haven't really embraced that mindset is in, in lieu of anything, in, in lieu of any sense that what you're doing is working or has some benefit or to your point, like is enough to celebrate. I do an exercise with teams that what is an outcome here that you would be super happy to celebrate, mm. you know, and, and like, what is a celebratable moment? And they'd say, well, but we need a technical goal for the OKR. And I'm like, screw that. Like you're, you're a professional. What is something, what is the type of feedback you need or the, the feedback mechanism that would, would let you be super happy about what you did? <laughs> And to go back to the analytics stuff, we're talking to these teams and they're not really, they have no idea whether any of this is working or whether they can celebrate other than celebrating shipping. And they, they seem to fall back on just the, the, the fed, the fetishism around busyness and tapping on keyboards. And th that, that becomes the signal that the machine is working is if everyone's tapping on their keyboards. Especially and the if you're, yeah. go ahead. Especially when you're in a queue-based environment, you know, if if all of your work is based is sitting around in queues of some kind, then progress feels like emptying the queue. But of course, the queue never gets empty because it's a never-ending backlog of stuff. So, so this is this is the treadmill that's really painful, where everybody feels like everybody's busy, and and progress is taking the queue down. But every every time you do work, it just creates more work in the queue, and you're never actually getting anywhere. Tark, when you think about like celebratable moments, what um, what comes to mind for you? Like, what what are the what are the characteristics of a celebratable moment for you as a designer at your point in your career? Yeah, I think we all fall into those traps of just you know continuing to build, so you feel like you've made progress. Um, you know, something I know I celebrated, and and a number of people on the team. We had once shipped a, a feature that, you know, once we did user research afterwards, you know, it, it was killing the metrics. It was doing super well in terms of engagement. But after we interviewed people from it, and usually you don't interview people when things are doing well, um, you interview people when things are going poorly. And so first I was 
I, I was proud we did that. We learned that people were using it as a crutch for trying to do something else. And so once we released those features, I was super proud that kind of the engagement went lower because it kind of proved that we were right. And so we actually ended up deprecating that original feature that, that had done well, but was used as a crutch because we had, you know, the proper ways to solve it. So for me, you know, I'm super proud when we do something like that. Um, and then whenever you get any sort of bet you've made, you know, work out, that, that always feels good, especially when, you know, it's based on some truth that you found, um, <laughs> you know, that feels so much better because you feel like, you know, the inputs, the way we're doing things are right. As opposed to, you know, there have been times I've launched something that, you know, none of us expected to do super well and then did really well. Those actually, you know, once you get more senior and are involved in strategy, those actually don't feel as good. You, you celebrate them with the team, but, <laughs> you know, you not knowing it would do that well is kind of concerning. Um, and, and it doesn't feel as good as the ones that, you know, are, are, are far more strategic uh, in, in its planning. This is super interesting. I think we probably need to schedule a follow-up <laughs> for this, but um, we, we could go on for another hour, it seems. Uh, Ryan, this has been amazing chatting with you about this stuff and, and a lot of super interesting uh, thoughts, uh, a lot of one-liners that I'm going to take with me, I think. Um, Tark, do we have a game? I, we should either say goodbye or we should have a game. So I think I would say game is good. What do you think? Yeah, I've, I've got something in mind. We, we've got to name this section because game just makes it sound like we're putting <laughs> our host. It to could be our like cool that. off period. It could be our oh, cool off yeah. period. So at the end, at the end of every episode, we'll have like our two week cool off period. No, we won't. Okay. Well, will Jason sue us if we if we take that <laughs> no. cool off period? No, no, Ryan will. Like they coined it. It's TM every year right. now. Okay. <laughs> well, um, okay. So, you know, we, we try to do these things. They, they've ranged from trying to understand song lyrics to, you know, kind of little improv moments. But I had something in mind that was completely kind of off topic. And then in a weird way, maybe comes back to topic. Okay. And okay. so, you know, Ryan, you lead strategy. So you're often thinking about emerging technology. You're often thinking about, you know, the new things you guys can incorporate. Um, I want to suggest a few options and see which one you would choose based on something as a product creator you'd be interested to make. Imagine if our phones could make us feel something in our body. So, so not like a punch or something, but maybe a light tap or can make us smell something, right? So there's no like air coming out of it. We just somehow our brain smells it or it can make us taste something. Right. And again, you're not chewing anything. You just get a brief moment of, of kind of that flavor or that taste. Um, between taste, <laughs> that is really weird. Between taste, smell, and touch, as a product creator, how would you think about it? And which one would you choose if you had to pick one? Uh, or, or rather, you got to pick one to build a product with. I, Without I'd stealing like everyone's that. like biometric data and, and yeah, fuel, for fuel, sure. like changing the course of humanity by <laughs> hacking elections and stuff like that yeah, yeah like so you're right, just yeah. gonna stick to smell and stuff like that like yeah yeah, yeah. pretend you're not hacking world elections let's, yeah, let's put right. that yeah with, with smell okay got it all right and, and so this is the weird way it comes all the way back around in terms of shaping how would you think about this <laughs> from a strategy point of view in terms of which one you would choose uh, well um 
I, 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 the problem is that it's a supply side question. And so in order to do any kind of shaping, we have to bring supply side and demand side together. So the thing is like, we have this new thing that we know how to work with, let's say like the, the whatever, whatever, this inner haptic thing where it's just going to like make you feel some kind of a touch sensation, you know, from the, the inside. ASMR, like dream come true. <laughs> you know, that, that, um, that's that. So that might be interesting, um, you know, as a new um, opening up a new possibility space. But that possibility space is is totally supply side. So we need to bring in something from the demand side to actually uh, constrain us and tell us like when is this relevant? When is this contextual? When is this helpful? You know. So I I, I took your question to be sort of maybe which of these things could I imagine would have the most interesting sort of demand side, um, you know, applications or, 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 you know, something like that. And, but it, it, it is fundamentally a supply side question. I think, I think the, I would pick, uh, I would pick touch just because it seems to be easier to deal with the dimensionality of it. Like, um, I think you'd have to become a, a, uh, like a super perfume expert to, to, to deal with the, the actual dimensionality of the smell space, you know, and ev even the taste space requires some, some real cultivation to, um, to work with it. Uh, and I'd be worried about, um, how the, the reptilian stuff that you would tap when you, when you invoke different, uh, smells and tastes, you know what I mean? Like it could be trouble emotionally to invoke those different things Sorry, versus, uh, at least, at you're least, doing with, well. you're doing so good. At, at least with a, at least with a tap or some sort of a touch thing, you could, you could imagine some very sort of discreet, uh, sort of narrowed down, like dimensionally reduced version of it, which is like, you're going to feel a tap on your left knuckle versus your right knuckle. Uh, for this type of a notification or something like that, you know, yeah. which is it would be still Jason's favorite app, right? Like it would be like, it would tap you on the shoulder every time, like you got an email, it'd be perfect for, for, for not distracting yourself, right? Like it would be amazing. Yeah, it sounds terrible, but I yeah, think exactly. that would be the most workable of the three. <laughs> that, I really like how you broke, broke it down for, for me, it would just be sent because I think I wouldn't want to give anyone the ability to to touch me or to um, have a taste in my mouth I feel like no matter how much no matter how good the social contracts got with you know uh, companies it, it would be like crossing the line but for scent I'm not sure if you guys know this but you know when you're in a mall or you're in a store each of them actually spray a distinct scent for each store and it's supposed to be something super subtle, but something that, you know, supposedly is supposed to remind you you're in that store. There's designers. There are scent designers. Yeah. Right, exactly. That's and crazy. so I feel like that would be fun because it would be like an ambient, like, like you know, Instagram would smell like, I don't know, beaches and insecurities. I don't know what that smells like. <laughs> you know, and like, smells like insecurity. Can, Does it, yeah, that's funny. Sorry. It would be like a. It would be like a subtle thing that would go well with how I understand product design, but but kind of like what you were saying, touch and you know the the other ones, it would just change the game so much. I I don't know if if I could handle that. <laughs> All right, both those are awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on this one. They're, they're just they're too good. They're, they're awesome. Okay, well, I, I don't know about shaping the thing. I you know there's all this stuff with. Do you have the Oculus thing? Tar you have one of these I, devices, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm really interested in VR. I'm going to live through my kid. 
I, I've skipped, I, I'm way tech savvier in some ways in some things, but I've purposely not adopted certain things. So I will have the pleasure of, of becoming a new like technology ski on or whatever with, through my kids' experiences of tech. So that's, that's, I'm not even going to get into this question because I'm going to just let, let him decide. Well, Ryan, we want to thank you so much for, for spending so long with us. This has definitely been our longest episode, but I think there's so much helpful things in here. So, you know, thank you again for, for spending the time to speak with us. Thanks guys. It was fun. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. All right. Well, take care everyone.